Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Taylor and Cassidy. Let's pray as we come to this word this morning. Father, I have very little to say, uh, but your word contains volumes of wisdom and truth, and it's rock solid. It can't be shaken. Though the grass withers and the flowers fade, uh, your word stands forever. And so we come uh, confidently resting and maybe not even confidently, but resting in, in the hope that this your word has power to change us. And we pray that your spirit would would be at work communicating it through me and to uh, the hearts of those who are here We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a couple of ways to get along in the world. There's the way of faith, which we'll get to in a moment. But there's also the way of sight. The way of of sight. And if we're just kind of making our way through this life based on what we see, there's there's a lot to be discouraged by. Uh, Just in the last few weeks, we've seen chaos. In Afghanistan, we've seen people so desperate to get out of that country that they have latched on to a plane that's taking off in hopes and and just a desperate hope that that's better than staying. We've seen mothers throwing their babies over barbed wire fences in the hope that whatever's on the other side of that fence is better than what's right here. And then turning our attention to what we see happening here. There's a hurricane that's just devastated the Gulf Coast and working its way up the East Coast, causing all sorts of damage in the Northeast in particular. There's wildfires in California. There's COVID, which will never end, it seems, and hospitals that are filling up and people that are still dying. And that doesn't even begin to mention what we see when we look at our own lives, like the the difficulty and the struggles that we have going on within our families, within our friendships, within our neighborhoods, even within our hearts that maybe nobody else knows about, but we're, we're struggling deeply with those things. What are we to do? If we're just walking by sight, that's kind of what we're left with. And a lot of people in this world have walked by what they see. And have concluded by looking around at what they see that there is no purpose, that it's all just random. There is no God. And it'd be easy. It's easy to conclude that if you're just basing your view of the world based on what you see, that there is no hope that we're all going to die in a few decades if we're lucky. And in the meantime, we just suffer. And that's it. The world is just falling apart. That's an understandable view of the world if you're reducing your view of the world to what you see with your eyeballs, because there's a lot to be discouraged by. But there's a better way uh, that the scriptures speak of, and that's the way of faith, to walk by faith. See, faith is defiant. Faith defies everything that we see with our eyeballs. It defies that. It says, nope. The way I see the world, my little limited 
understanding of the world is not the way the world really is, that it's different than how I see. In fact, it's not falling apart, even though it often appears that it is. It's actually being put back together and restored. And that's what we're seeing here in the life of Abram. Abram is walking by faith. He's walking by faith and he's 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 struggling. He fails at times to walk by faith. But still, he has this faith that God is doing a great work in the world through him that will bless all nations. And that's what he's believing. And by the way, I should say this. Abram's not just walking kind of in this nebulous faith like I just got faith that it's all going to work out. No, God has given him very specific promises. He's spoken to him. And so Abram's faith is resting upon God's promises, the word that God has given to Abram. And, you know, if, if you're walking by faith, it looks really silly to people that are walking by sight. It looks funny. It looks pitiful. Remember Noah building an ark in the middle of the land? And can you imagine his neighbors? He's working for decades on this enormous boat. His, his neighbors are like, Noah, you're, you know, at first they think it's kind of funny. And then as the years go on, it's like, this is pathetic. This man has devoted his life to building a boat in the middle of land. Or Abram. Now, he's still called Abram in Genesis 15. His name's about to change to Abraham. And you know what Abraham means? Father of many nations. We might paraphrase it as Big Daddy. So Big Daddy has has these two promises, land and children, many descendants, many as the stars in the sky. His offspring and his name is Big Daddy and everybody's calling him that, but he's got no land. He's wondering his whole life and he's got no children. That's that's I mean, it's laughable. It's laughable to see that. And even Paul, you know, Paul says for the Christian, he says Christians are the most pitiful people on the planet. More pitiful than the than the Afghan Afghan that clings to a plane that's taking off more pitiful than the mother throwing her child over a barbed wire fence in hopes hopes of a better life. Paul says we are the most pitiful people on the planet. If there is no resurrection, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he says that's us. But if God's promises are true, if God's work in the world is true. It make, the, the life of faith makes perfect sense. The life of faith is the only acceptable way to live. No, if there's really a flood coming, then this boat that's in the middle of it's gonna God's flood of judgment is gonna cover the earth. Then this boat makes a lot of sense. If God is really gonna bless the world through Abram and through his children, his offspring, then to call Abram Big Daddy makes a lot of sense. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, then game changer. Our, our faith makes all the sense in the world because God can do what he says he can, what is, will do. He's, his promises are true and they're worth clinging to. So this life of Abram that we've been seeing for over a month now shows us life, the life of faith in action. And it's not always pretty, but it's instructive. And we're going to learn something about it. We've seen the fruits of faith already. Remember, we've seen Abram be generous, 
Faith produced generosity in Abram. It it produced courage in Abram. We've seen him be generous towards his nephew Lot in giving him the land of Lot's choice and courageous and in, in giving the land and then sweeping in and rescuing Lot from this king, this, this powerful kingdom that had captured Lot. And Abram militarily going in to fight these people to save Lot. He's generous. He's courageous. We've seen that faith produces um, kind of a passive resting. As Abram says, Lot, take whatever land you want. It's all, take the, you pick and I'll go the other way. Abram faithfully resting in the promises of God. And then last week in Genesis 14, we see faith produce decisive action in the life of Abram. Right? Lot's been captured by a formidable foe. And what does Abram do? He gets his sword. He girds his loins. He saddles his war horse. He musters his 318 men and he hits the warpath to get Lot back. Decisive action. Now... In our passage this morning, we're going to see more aspects of what the life of faith looks like. Faith, two things. Faith means we doubt. Faith means we doubt. And faith means we wait. Okay, those are the two things. It's in the title. Faith faith doubts and faith waits. And then we're going to conclude by considering why doubts don't break us and why we can wait with confidence in the Lord. Okay, so that's the plan. Faith doubts, faith waits, and why our faith can handle the doubts and the waiting. So first, faith doubts. You hear that and you think, man, that's like a, that's an oxymoron. That's like uh, jumbo shrimp or old news. Like that doesn't make any sense. That's a contradiction in terms. Faith doubts. Yes, biblical faith doubts. And we see it here in this passage. Let's look, look at verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, it says after these things. And what it's referring to, again, is Abram's rescue of Lot. And remember, he defeated this powerful enemy. And what happened? If you soundly beat a bully... What, what happens after that? You might expect that bully to come after you because he's lost face and then bullies don't like to lose face. And so naturally, Abram's like frightened. And what does the Lord say? Fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I, as Melchizedek told you, I gave you victory against this king and I'm now going to protect you against this king. I'm your shield, your protection. And then Abram has two questions. Look at verse two, the first question. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Right. He said, your reward shall be great. He's like, well, what's the reward? I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, in the, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, if a, if a, if a couple was, were unable to have children, they would adopt one of their own servants to become the, the heir, to receive their possessions and their wealth and everything once they died. And so apparently, Eliezer has become that person. 
Which is a little, which by the way, that's a little bit of an indication that Abram's not trusting the promises of God. He's sort of saying, okay, I'm, clearly I'm not going to have a child. I've got to adopt Eliezer. Okay? And then he's, but he's got a second question. Verses 7 and 8. Look, look at uh, verse 7. God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But then Abram says in reply, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God has been saying all along, there's two things I'm going to give you. Two things. There's offspring so that you can have many descendants and there's land. And Abram is asking a very natural question. I don't have any land and I don't have any children. And remember, we're like 90 something years old now. He and Sarai, they could not have children in their years of fertility. How, how much how how much of a long shot is it now that they're in their 90s that they can have, that they're going to have children? And Abram's these these questions and doubts are in his head. Right. That's why he's asking the questions. Underneath these kinds of questions are doubts. So, like, husbands, if you're driving to an unknown location, never been there before, your, your co-pilot, your wife's there on the shotgun, and she says, um, now, where are we going? Did you, did you uh, put this address in Google? Um, are you sure you know where you're going? If, if, the, if the spouse starts asking those questions... You, husbands, you probably don't like that very much, do you? Because why, why don't you like it? Because they're doubting your navigation skills, right? Those questions clue you in to, to the fact that there's some doubts about what's going on. Or maybe, maybe um, your children, you're taking kids to get a shot and your children are asking, does it hurt? Is the needle big? How long does it hurt? Why do I have to do all of those questions are, are, are underneath the questions are doubts that the child doesn't really believe that this is going to be good for them. That's the concern, right? Doubts about the goodness of the shot or doubts about your navigation skills or whatever. But those questions underneath are doubts. And when Abram asks these questions about his offspring and about the land, he's doubting. He's wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? Is this really going to be fulfilled? Those are his questions. And people of faith doubt all the time. If you want a good example, read the whole book of Psalms. Psalms is exhibit A. Showing us how the people of faith regularly, routinely doubt. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. Think about that. Faith without doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. What's an antibody? It's not really supposed to be there, but it's good that it is because it's building up a defense system for when like the real virus or the real sickness or disease or whatever comes into your system. Now you're, you're, you're resilient to withstand that. And, and so it is with doubts. It builds up a defense system for our faith. That's what they do. When I was nine, I, I, came, I came to faith. I grew up in a church home and believed in Jesus at age nine and was baptized 
shortly after, and a couple of years after that, I can remember studying uh, social studies, like fifth, fifth, sixth grade, and um, the, we were learning about little children in Japan, and learning about little children in the Middle East, and the Japanese children were mostly Buddhist, and the Middle Eastern children were mostly Muslim, and I remember thinking, how did I hit the religious jackpot And that I had just sort of inherited, like received this truth of Christianity. And how was I to know that the little children in Buddhists were in Japan that were Buddhists were wrong or that the children in the Middle East that were Muslims were wrong? Who's to say that this one's right versus these others? And it and then and then because but what did it in there? Because then this is what I thought. Well, now, wait a sec. I'm kind of questioning Christianity. I may not even believe because now I'm demonstrating doubts as to whether Christianity is true among these other faiths. And it created a whole host of concerns and doubts and worry. Because I and here's what I did. I remember going to different church, church leaders and, and folks and kind of asking, like, help, help me. And, they, and here's the response. This is the response that I received. We just got to believe. And we were thinking, well, there's no, I can't just hit like the belief button and turn it on. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. And that's the problem. I, I can't do that. But you just got to believe. See, here, here, here was my belief. I, I believe, and I, I don't know where I got this, but somehow I, I had this understanding that to express any doubt in my heart was to compromise the whole faith project of my soul. It was to compromise everything. But as I've kind of moved along in this faith journey, I realized that those doubts actually strengthened the faith project. Listen to what Francis Bacon says. He says, if we begin in certainties, we end in doubt. If we begin in certainties, we end in doubt. If we begin in doubts, we end in certainties. You see the point? Like, Doubts drive us deeper into the faith. Not away. They can. They can drive us deeper into the faith. So long as we keep turning back to the Lord and coming to him for help and for understanding. And I think the idea that you just got to believe and and that's it. Just hit the belief button. Turn it on is a flawed understanding of, of faith. It doesn't line up with the biblical understanding of faith. I also don't think it lines up with just kind of a common sense understanding of how faith works. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. We um, went to Six Flags this summer. Our kids now really enjoy roller coasters. And so we wanted to hit a theme park. And, you know, you go up and you wait in line forever and you finally get to where you can see the actual ride. And we're in there in line. And it's fun to watch the faces of the people that are like right in front of you. that are getting on the, the roller coaster. And, you know, some folks on that roller coaster, they're. They're cool customers. They probably have season, season pass holders. You know, they're just very relaxed, calm. Probably have like 100% faith that this ride, where it starts, they're going to get back in about a, two minutes. They're going to land right back where they started. No worries. It's going to be fine. But then you see other faces and they look like they're going to die. Like in, within seconds. Fear on their eyes. They have hardly any faith at all that this roller coaster is going to get them to where they started. But they had enough faith to get on the ride, right? So they're, they're trusting the ride to some degree. They're on it. 
In a minute, 30 seconds goes by. They come back to where they, and they're all there, safe and sound. They made it. See, here's the point. It didn't matter their level of faith in the roller coaster. What mattered was the object of their faith, right? The structural integrity and safety of the roller coaster. That's what mattered. And so it is with our faith. It's less about us and our faith. It's more about the object of our faith. Christ. That's where our faith is. That's what we lean into. What Christ asks of us is that we get on him. And have him carry us through this life. And of course there will be doubts. See, the Bible accounts for this. Abram's asking these questions of God. Like, how are you going to give me offspring? How are you going to give me this land? They're, they're very legitimate and reasonable questions. And it makes sense that Abraham would ask these questions because he's given his whole life to these promises of God. He's uprooted his family and he's a sojourner as a result of God's leading. So it makes sense that he would ask these questions. Right. God, how am I going to get the child? How am I going to get this land? I think about our, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are, who are in hiding right now, and they're worried that they will be drugged through the streets and swiftly executed. Do you think that those Christian brothers and sisters are thinking a bit differently about their faith now than they were two months ago? Do I really believe this? Is this really worth giving my life to, which is like the likely outcome for me? Do you see? As the stakes of faith rise, it's only natural that questions would, would, would come in. And underneath those questions are, are, are little doubts, little doubts, little doubts. If you have no doubts at all, it may mean, it may, that Christianity is not costing you much in life. Here, here, here's a question. Here's a diagnostic question for you. If we were able to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt with 100% certainty that Christianity was false, it was fabricated, it was completely made up, and we all just stopped, we're done with this meeting, we could still get together every once in a while, but we're not doing any of this stuff anymore because it's no longer true. If that was proven, how would your life change? How would you live your life differently if Christianity was not true? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question to, to ponder. You see, when faith begins to cost, it's only normal that we would begin to doubt. In fact, Abraham's doubts are proof that he actually believes the promises of God. He actually believes that he's going to get offspring. And he actually believes that he's going to get the land. He just has no way... In, by looking at the world and his circumstances, he sees no way by which God can connect the dots from his belief in that promise to the, to, the, to the promise being realized in the form of a child and land. He just can't connect those dots. So he's asking the questions. Okay, so that's the first point. Faith doubts. Second point, faith waits. Faith waits. Verse 12. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out. Your, your children will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, which is another way to say 400 years. Like a generation equals about 100 years, according to this scheme. So then they'll come back in about 400 years for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So Abram asks about this promise of land. And you know what God says? You're going to get your land, Abram. Your people are going to get your land, but it's going to be 400 years. Right? That's a long time. I mean, we've barely passed as a nation, the 200 year mark, 400 years. Part of the life of faith is waiting. It's waiting. And remember, we're getting like a little highlight reel of Abraham's life. We're getting the highlights. But just think about all the waiting that he's doing. Wondering when Sarah is going to get pregnant. Wondering when he's going to have that child. Wondering when he's going to get the land. He gets a big clue right here. And the answer is you're not going to get it. It's going to come 400 years down the road to your children. But it's going to come. God says it's going to come. And this is the life of faith. It means that we wait. And it's really hard to wait. Uh, our children came late in pregnancy. We always found ourselves waiting. There would be the due date. And then there would be like two weeks. And then there would be a, usually an induction because it's like we can't wait forever. Two weeks after the due date. And, you know, we knew it on our third child, for example. We knew this was the pattern. And the due date rolls around for, for uh, our youngest. And um, the day goes by, another day, another day, a week goes by. And I remember thinking after a week, here's the psychology of it. I remember thinking, this baby's not going to come. <laughs> With every day that went by, it felt less likely that the baby was going to come. It really did. Now, that makes no sense at all because the truth was it was only more likely with each day that went by that the baby was going to come, that Oliver was going to arrive into our lives. But the psychology of it, I was thinking, no, it's not. The baby's not coming. And that's how that's how waiting works. Kids, Christmas is a few months away. It's 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 getting starting to get closer. You wait for Christmas. It's hard, isn't it? Sometimes it feels like it'll never come. It just won't ever come. This is what waiting means. C.S. Lewis in his autobiography talks about uh, his boarding school days. He hated it. He got bullied. He got picked on. He didn't want to be away from his his dad um, and his home and all that was comfortable to him. And he had to be shipped off by train to boarding school. And it was awful. He calls it concentration camp. And uh, he says... Being at that boarding school taught him about hope and it taught him about waiting because at the beginning of every term, it felt as though the end of that term would never come. It would never come. He says, but guess what? It always came. It always arrived. And that taught him Christian hope because Christian hope and the Christian faith is largely about waiting. Do you find yourself waiting? You've, you've got the promises of God. You've got the situation on the ground. And you don't like, the, they, don't, they don't line up. They're out of whack. 
And you're trying to figure out, you're just, you're just waiting. You've waited decades. You've been praying for decades for a lost friend or for a challenge in a relationship or division between family or, or whatever it is. It feels as though God's not at work. Like he's just sort of, and you've maybe even just said, okay, that part, I'm going to have to cut off that part of my life. Don't do that. People of faith, wait. Abram's just learned that the land is coming, but it's 400 years down the road. Remember the, the horizon, right? Don't think about the next year, the next five years. The next, think about the next 2,000 years. Right? That's, the, that's the horizon that we're operating under. And God is going to fulfill his purposes. So oddly enough, an aspect of faith is that we doubt sort of like antibodies in our faith system, strengthens it. And another aspect of faith is that we wait and the wait sweetens it. It will sweeten it one day when the promises are realized. Now, the question I want us to consider as we close is, how can we know that the life of faith is worth the wait and that our doubts won't overwhelm God's faithfulness to us? How can we know that the life of faith is worth the wait and that the promises of God won't over uh, that will, will become be faithful. We won't we won't lose them because of our doubts. What if God said to Abram, "Okay, Abram, I'm going to be good to my promises because, buddy, Abram, where there's a will, there's a way. Abram, if I give you nothing but lemons, you make some lemonade, buddy. You you make the best of the situation that I place you in." You can do it. You've done, Abram, I know there was the whole Egyptian thing. We'll call that a mulligan. You've done really good in chapters 13 and chapters 14. You've done really good. Just keep it up. Keep up the good work. And all these things will be yours. That's not what God says. Praise God, it's not. It's not what he says. It's not dependent on Abram. And it's, it's this strange thing that happens. Very strange. So let's try to understand what's going on. Look at verse 9. God said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then verse 10, Abram brought him these. Oh, and look at what he does. He cuts them in half, and he lays each half over against the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. Did God tell Abram to cut those things in half? No, he didn't. He just said, bring me these things. See, Abram knows what God is about to do because what God is asking Abram to do is a very common thing in the ancient Near East. And it's even, I mean, it's still done to this day. It's a way of making a promise. It's called a blood path ceremony. And Abram knows exactly what's happening here. God is going to covenant. He's going to promise Abram these things. And he's going to do it with a ceremony that binds Abram and God together in covenant. And that ceremony is called a blood path ceremony. And what a person would do, or two parties, they would get animals. They would bring, and this is, I know it's bloody and violent, and, but just it, it makes perfect sense. And they understand it. You cut the animals in half. You line them up in two rows and the blood of the animals pours into the middle. And each member in the promise, each member making the covenant, 
would walk through the blood path as though to say, if I fail my end of the promise, my destiny is the same as these dead animals all around. It's my life. And the other member of the promise of the covenant would walk through the blood path and say, if I fail my end of the promise, my destiny is the destiny of these dead animals. My life, if I fail. Okay, so that's that's what that's what this is all. That's what's happening here. It's a blood path ceremony. And we get examples of it in Jeremiah. There's examples of it outside of the Bible. It's, It's a fairly common practice. And then look at verse 17. Okay. The sun goes down and it was dark and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, to your offspring, your children, I give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites and and on and on and on. All right. I'm giving you this land. That's the promise that God makes. But what passes between the, the animals in this vision? It's a smoking pot, a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch. What does that mean? These are emblems of God. This is, this is God walking this blood path. Think about think about the Exodus, right? They're guided by a pillar, uh, a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Fire, smoke, smoke, fire. It, it, it throughout Scripture, it's the presence of God. And did you notice who didn't walk through the blood path? Abram. He didn't walk through it. Do you see what God is saying? Abram. If I fail these promises, which I won't because I'm good to my promises, I take the curse. I I receive what these animals receive. But here's where this is incredible. God says, if you fail to keep your end of the covenant, I will walk the blood path. I will take the curse of your failure upon myself. That's what God is saying in this vision. And as we know. The people of Israel, Abraham and his descendants often show faithlessness to God. They fail. They don't they don't keep the promises. They they don't remain faithful to God. But God remains faithful to them and he sends his son, Jesus, and Jesus walks the blood path all the way to the cross where he takes upon himself all of the faithlessness of the children of Israel, all of the faithlessness of, of the whole world upon himself so that we could get his righteousness and his blessing. He took our fate in this covenant so that we could get his fate of perfection. So there you have it. Abraham doubts and Abraham waits. And if God, if, if, look, here's the thing. If, if this new creation project that God is working in the world is dependent upon us, that's big trouble for us. It's not going to get off the ground. But as this blood path ceremony says, it's not. It's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon God's faithfulness to his promises. And even if we fail, God is willing to take the curse of that failure upon himself. That's what he's saying here. 
in this vision that his promises are trustworthy. They're true. God is working them out, but he's working them out over the course of thousands and thousands of years. So cling to those promises. He will get it done. And our doubts won't overwhelm that. Our impatience won't overwhelm that. And it's it's all for our good. Do you you know what he wants to do? Not only is he taking this curse, but he wants to shower us. These are some of the promises of God. Paul says in Ephesians that what Christ wants to do, what God wants to do is shower upon us for for ages to come his immeasurable kindness to us. Paul says if, if God gave his one and only son, how much more will he give us all things? That all things are working for our good. Right? That he will never leave us. His presence is always with us. There's nothing that can take us away from our, our security in Christ. Not even death. He promises us that his resurrection power is within us, at work, enabling us to live the life of faith. That he'll never leave us or forsake us. That he will make firm our steps. And that's just like a little sampling of the promises of God. That's like a little, you know, little nugget on a toothpick of the promises of God. His promises are trustworthy and he is making good on those promises. May our doubts push us deeper into the faith and may we wait patiently on the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the importance of it, that it is a um, resounding declaration that you are faithful and great is your faithfulness. Help us to rest in you in the perfect work of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.